0: Good evening, I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Thought of René Girard. In the Christian Bible, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that he is going to reveal things hidden since the foundation of the world. René Girard has used this formula as the title of one of his books, because he thinks he's found out what it means. What had been hidden until Jesus revealed it was that human culture is founded on a collective murder. Culture begins, Girard says, when people spontaneously unite against a single victim and the war of each against each becomes the unity of all against one, the principle of the scapegoat. And out of the corpse of the scapegoat victim, grows the sacrificial cult which is the origin of every society.
1: Religion is the means through which the order created, you know, the peace created by the first murder, turns gradually into a a cultural system. Humanity is the child of religion. In a way, uh, religion is like the placenta which protects the newborn and gets discarded when Is
0: where they're born. René Girard's ideas fit no academic niche, but they've attracted many followers during his long career as a teacher and writer. A large annual conference called the Colloquium on Violence and Religion is devoted entirely to his ideas, as is a journal called Contagion. Many of those who take part believe that Girard's insights are an intellectual breakthrough.
2: The work of René Girard is of world historical importance. It seems to me that he offers us the Archimedean point from which all of our knowledge in not only the humanities, but I would venture to say in the sciences as, as well, may begin to be rethought.
0: René Girard was born in the southern French city of Avignon in 1923 and emigrated to the United States in 1947. He taught throughout his career at American universities, retiring from Stanford in 1995. The first of his nine books, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, was published in 1961. The most recent, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, has just appeared. In this five-hour Ideas series, David Cayley will explore with René Girard the whole body of Girard's work. En route, they'll touch on literature, anthropology, the Bible, and the way biblical revelation has shaped the modern world. The Scapegoat, Part 1, by David Cayley. A few years ago,
3: while preparing an idea series on prisons, I repeatedly came across the name of René Girard and was struck by the deep interest his work held for people involved with prisoners. I remembered having been fascinated by an essay of Girard's which I had read many years before, but never followed up, and so I decided to investigate, picking up first a book called The Scapegoat, which was published in English in 1986. The book compares the worldview found in mythology with the outlook of the Christian Gospels, and I hadn't been reading for long before I realized that I was in the presence of a master interpreter, one of those rare, penetrating minds that can unearth layer upon layer of significance in stories that most of us take only at their face. I went on, with mounting interest and enthusiasm, to the rest of Girard's work and eventually wrote to him to ask if he would be willing, with my assistance, to present his ideas on CBC radio. Happily, he agreed. And late last summer, I spent several days with him at his home in Stanford, California, recording the interviews on which these programs are based. We began with the idea that underpins all of Girard's theories, imitation. Conflict between people, he believes, is rooted in our propensity for imitation, or in what he calls mimetic desire, an idea that began to take shape for him through his study of the great European novelists. He'd begun his academic career as an historian enrolling in 1943 in occupied Paris at the École des Chartes, an institution for the technical training of archivists and historians. He found the subject matter rather dry, and in 1947 went to the United States, where circumstances nudged him towards literary studies. You know,
1: I went to Indiana University with a student visa, and I was doing a PhD in history, because I was more of a historian. than I was not at all a literary man. And I was teaching the French language at Indiana University. And uh, very quickly, they gave me some literature to teach. Novels, Balzac, Stendhal, Proust, you know, and much of the time I was just a few pages ahead of my <laughs> students. You know, I hadn't <laughs> read the books, and uh, I didn't know what to say. And uh, I decided that I should look — very deliberately — I should look for what made these books alike, rather than for what makes them different from each other, which is what literary criticism, even in those days, was after. You know, a book was, was a masterpiece, only if it was absolutely one of a kind. If you could find nothing in it, that would be in another book. Which is complete nonsense, of course. So I became interested in, uh, in human relations in the novel, you know, and how the vanity and stand how close it is to the snobbery imposed. Then I remember I heard or I read an article by a colleague about the story in Don Quixote, which is called El Curioso Impertinente. It is a young man who has a very good friend, a friend who decides everything for him, and he wants to get married, and he gets married through his friend. In other words, the friend provides the bride. The friends know the bride and says, you should marry that girl, she's a perfect girl for you. And, so, and he marries the girl. And after a while, he asks his friend to court his wife in order to prove to himself that his wife is completely faithful to him. The friend is scandalized and refuses with great uh, energy and so forth, but he insists so much that finally the friend relents and starts courting the wife. And they become lovers, and the husband uh, commits suicide. So it's a very tragic story inside Don Quixote. And it's exactly, if you look at the story, it's exactly the same plot as The Eternal Husband of Dostoevsky. So there I had a good case, in a way, against formalism, because it was not the same language, it was not the same time, it was not the same style, you know, completely different, and it was absolutely the same content. That's when I realized that content matters. So that everything clicked, with that uh, story, you know. And of course, that story reappears in many other writers. It reappears in Shakespeare, which I didn't know, and it reappears in Joyce. Joyce, If you read a life of Joyce, you will see that he had that type of jealousy, which you find in Dostoevsky, The Eternal Husband, and which you find in that curioso impertinente of uh, Don Quixote. So this was really the key to my whole literary enterprise, anyway.
3: This enterprise came to fruition in 1961, with the publication in French of a book called "Mensonge Romantique et Vérité Romanesque," literally "Romantic Lie and Novelistic Truth." The English edition appeared four years later as "Deceit, Desire, and the Novel." Building on the pattern he had first noted in the Cervantes story of impertinent curiosity and drawing also on the works of Stendhal, Flaubert, Dostoevsky, and Proust, Girard argued that the greatest novelists all expose what he called the romantic lie, which is that our desires and purposes arise from some creative inner depth within ourselves. The truth, which the great novelists reveal, according to Girard, is that our desires are generally inspired by the desires of others. We want things not because they are inherently desirable, but because someone else's desire for them has made them attractive to us. The husband, in the Cervantes story, loves his wife only so far as this love is endorsed by his friend. In advertisements, products are usually presented not on their merits, but as the possessions of attractive or prestigious people. We are invited to desire not so much the beer or the car as some quality of being that seems to belong to the blessed souls who we see drinking the beer or driving the car. Desire, Girard says, is never just a straight line between a subject and an object, but always has some other as its model.
1: Desire is essentially borrowed desire, there is no such thing as natural desire. Otherwise, it would be instinct. And uh, if desire had a fixed object, it couldn't change, and it would be the same thing as animal instinct. Therefore, desire comes always from uh, the other. Therefore, this other, if he is close enough socially, physically, will necessarily become our rival when we desire his object.
3: Human desire is changeable by its very nature, Gerard says. Beyond those basic things to which instinct or appetite direct us, our wants and our abilities are shaped entirely by imitation of those who surround us and those we admire. This is how we develop our entire cultural repertoire, beginning with the language we speak. We learn because we want to be like those from whom we learn, This much many theorists of imitation have noticed. Aristotle, for example, says that humans are the most mimetic of all creatures. But what Aristotle doesn't say, and where Girard is original, is in pointing to the shadow side of this aptitude for imitation, which is the way in which it leads to rivalry between those who desire the same things. And this rivalry, Girard says, will be most intense between those who are most alike in their interests and affections. The marvelous paradox is that the closer you are, the more
1: your goals will be the same. And this will be true at the highest level, at the intellectual level. If we are really very close intellectually, we're going to look for the same thing. And there will be moments when we will feel that the other is more successful than we are. As a matter of fact, it's everybody's tendency to feel that the other is more successful. It's also everybody's tendency to feel I am more successful, or I should be more successful. But anyway, the problem will be there. Because man is essentially a dynamic individual, you know, who wants to occupy the whole ground. And this individualism will lead us into competition with the people who are closest to us. You know, people don't think enough about the formula of Aristotle. What is tragedy? Tragedy is uh, conflict to the death between people closest to each other. The closer you are to someone, the greater the possibility of conflict, given what man is and his goals and his
3: imperialism, is individual imperialism. The closer we are, Girard says, the more we will want the same things, and the more we want the same things, the more we will tend to compete. This, for him, is one of the unspoken truths of social existence, a truth hidden by the romantic lie, but revealed in the greatest works of literature.
1: Take a Shakespearean example. There is a character in Antony and Cleopatra, who looks at Antony and uh, Octavius, and says the very thing which is the cause of their amity is going to become the reason for their divorce, for their disagreement. And all over Shakespeare, you, you see things like that. Therefore, they become obstacles to one another, since they both want to govern Rome. And Brutus, when Brutus says, I love Caesar, I love so much that I have to kill him, because he gives me all my goals, and I love Rome because of him. Therefore, he's my obstacle, since he's the master of Rome. Do I want to kill him because I love the Republic so much? Or do I want to kill him because he's in the way?
3: In Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, Caesar is both Brutus's model and his obstacle at the same time. In Girard's view, a characteristic effect of mimetic desire. In a book on Shakespeare called A Theater of Envy, he writes, individuals who desire the same thing are united by something so powerful that as long as they can share whatever they desire, they remain the best of friends. As soon as they cannot, They become the worst of enemies. This is the fertile contradiction that produces the endless transformations of desire in Shakespeare's plays. We want others to love what we love, admire what we admire. But when they do, we suddenly find that they have become obstacles and competitors. Gregory Bateson, in his theory of schizophrenia, dubbed this kind of damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation a double bind and Girard has sometimes borrowed the term to describe the tangled workings of mimetic desire.
1: You receive the command, imitate me, and at the same time, there is another command, which is, do not imitate me. So, I think the perfect form of it is mimetic desire, because in mimetic desire, if my best friend is in love with a girl, he will say to me, imitate me, my girlfriend is more admirable than any other. This is a two gentlemen of Verona, you know, where Valentine has a long speech in which he invites Proteus to share in the worship. Therefore, Proteus imitates the desire of uh, Valentine, And immediately, the command that he hears is, do not imitate me. So, these two commands come at the same time. And this double bind is, I think, what education should warn children about uh, peers. For instance, two boys are friends because they are in the same field. They love the same. But there is only one fellowship for the two therefore they become rivals. Any master and disciple are in a double-bind situation with each other. The master wants his pupil to imitate him as diligently and effectively as possible. But if the pupil is too effective, he will suddenly overshadow, become better than the master. And uh, The master will see the contradiction and will not dare say, you imitate me too well, or will not even think that. He will try to find something wrong with his disciple. So the double bind, there is a tendency never to express it, because if you express it, you express the essential contradiction of uh, living together, which is competition.
3: So we have to keep quiet. We keep quiet about it. We keep quiet about it.
1: We keep quiet about it, and it's one of the most fascinating things. We tell children, for instance, that there is no problem, or either that they should imitate or they should not imitate, but never that they should imitate sometime, and not too effectively. Which is the essential existential contradiction, you might say. And this essential contradiction can be expressed logically, is very visible in all our actions, you know, and it's the essence of competition. Competere means to join together toward the same goal. But at some moment, someone, everybody
3: wants to reach, to be the first to reach that goal. Competition, according to the mimetic theory, is inherent in imitation. And once competition begins, Girard says, it will tend to be self-sustaining because the conflict itself will quickly become the main source of attraction. The competitor will become more interesting than the object of competition. Arguments provide an everyday example, wars a catastrophic one. In either case, the point of fact or pride that started the altercation is usually long forgotten by the time the struggle comes to an end. The obstacle itself is now what intrigues us a paradox that Girard calls scandal. I define
1: scandal as the obstacle which attracts you, the paradoxical obstacle. And it can only be the uh, mimetic rival. But you deny this attraction. You want to think of the rival only in negative terms. Therefore, you do everything not to imitate your model. If he wears a blue tie, you will wear a red one or something, but you'll still imitate him madly, in the sense that you will desire everything he desires. If you're my model and I fall in love with your wife, with your daughter, and so forth, we're going to become rivals, period. And this rivalry will play both ways, because probably You're you're no longer in love with your wife, because you've possessed her securely for many years, and my desire is going to revive yours. Therefore, you're going to become my imitator, as well as my model. And everything will move both ways, in perfect identity, finally, and always being interpreted
3: in terms of difference. The fact that rivals grow more alike with every new attempt to be different often causes them to intensify their conflict. But the more frantic the search for stable differences becomes, Girard says, the more aimless and undifferentiated the conflict actually grows. Everything is symmetrical on both sides.
1: The design is absolutely the same. But the rivals have to think their relationship in terms of difference and they do their best to differ from each other. And they cannot do it, because as soon as someone invents something to move differently, to be different from his opponent, uh, the other
3: does it too. Once conflict is underway, Girard says, it will tend to produce sameness on all sides. A single, inexorable logic will finally reduce everything to the same terms, while at the same time producing a phantasmagoria of apparent differences. The more alike the enemy becomes, the more different he will seem. Girard's theory conceives of violence in a new way. Violence has usually been thought of as the expression of some aggressive instinct or as the product of a struggle over scarce resources. Girard pictures it as a form of runaway imitation. And this new conception, like any new idea, can at first be difficult to grasp. There's the injury to our self-esteem involved in thinking of ourselves as imitators rather than as creative, self-inventing individuals. And then there's the common view of imitation as something admittedly pervasive, but at the same time embarrassingly trivial, and therefore unlikely to explain anything fundamental. Paul de Mouchel is professor of philosophy at the University of Quebec at Montreal. He's known Girard for many years and frequently written about him, as well as incorporating Girard's theories into his own work. He says that the mimetic theory explains all sorts of puzzling social phenomena, but only when one has first grasped the new sense with which Girard imbues the idea of imitation.
4: There's a lot of behaviors which appear as either as random or unexplainable which fall into place once you have this hypothesis that agents actually do imitate each other. But imitation has to be understood as Not only doing exactly the same thing, but uh, doing what the other agent intends to do in a sense. This imitation is just a bit more complex than just grabbing the same thing from both sides, two different persons together. But actually, if you desire to distinguish yourself from me, then I will desire to distinguish myself from you. But desiring to distinguish myself from you might mean doing systematically the opposite of what you're doing. So when we first look at this, we do not see this as imitation. It is only once we consider imitation as an abstract concept, which describes a certain type of symmetry between the behavior of different people that we actually see these things appear. And that is one of the things which makes understanding properly this theory so difficult because everybody thinks, well, of course I've understood what it is, imitation, that's clear. And at the same time, I don't see any example of imitation in this, but in a way... We have to see that when Oedipus, at the end of the play Oedipus, Rex, actually hurts himself, I mean, tears his eyes off, he actually imitates what everybody else is saying about him. They're all saying that he's guilty, and he punishes himself for his own guilt. But then he becomes the imitator of all those who say he is guilty. But doing that is, of course, a form of imitation which does not appear transparently, as in everyday life, as imitation. So that's why I think René Girard was quite right to choose a different term to describe it, which is the term of mimesis, which indicates that we're not exactly dealing with what? The everyday concept of imitation.
3: Another radical and potentially unfamiliar aspect of Girard's theory is its conception of the self. The huge emphasis placed on choice and decision in our world tends to make us think of the self as something free and sovereign. But if Girard is right, the self is more like an unruly crowd than a serene sovereign. It can be a disconcerting idea, says another friend and colleague of Girard's, British theologian James Allison, but also a liberating one. We desire according to the desire of
2: another. And if that is the case, then our being is dependent on desire. It's not as though first there is a being, which desires. First there is me, and I have these desires, Uh, but rather there are these desires which form me, which gives us I think the sort of malleability of self which is true to life, and begins to enable us to understand how much we are driven by all sorts of reactive forces which I convince myself are me-willing but which turn out to be me-willed. And I found that staggering because it it enables the beginning of something like metaphysical humility. There's the beginning of a, a, a realistic understanding of how one relates to others, how one is driven and how one is free, but also how much one is bound up in a whole lot of mechanisms that operate relatively independently of those who think they're operating them.
0: I'm Paul Kennedy, and on Ideas tonight, you're listening to The Scapegoat, a profile of French thinker René Girard, presented by David Cayley. Eleven years after René Girard
3: first described mimetic desire in his book Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, he took the next step in the evolution of his theory with a book called Violence and the Sacred, published in English in 1977. This book explored a question to which Girard was unavoidably led by his earlier findings. If violence is a form of imitation that constantly threatens to get out of hand and produce a general crisis— How is it that humanity has even survived? Girard's answer was that our ancestors, during the course of their evolution, must have hit upon some way of keeping their violence at bay. And what the anthropological record suggests that they must have discovered, he says, is the unifying power of a common enemy.
1: The whole tribe ultimately will kill one victim. Why? Because as the mimesis works laterally, it will be cumulative, ultimately, of its own weight, you know, as it becomes more and more intense. For instance, uh, you see it in a civil war, where you have uh, several centers, if you want, of uh, trouble, which tend to turn into two. Turn into two, why? Because uh, in mimetic rivalry, They seem to be completely focused, you alone, against your antagonist. But then, another antagonism shows up where you have three or four or five or six, and you become attracted to them. For instance, political passion, I think, may be something like that. Political passion, I think everyone has noticed with their own friends, who are very ideological, very passionate in politics. If some morning they show up at the office and they are especially excited, you know that it has nothing to do with politics, that they had a fight with their wives or something, and that they are substituting, that they are transferring to the political sphere. You See what I mean? So, I really think that this process is very important of substitution, because it's a one which makes the mimesis cumulative, and ultimately must gather the whole group against a single victim. Once you accept that the process is mimetic, rather than significance or ideas, it has to be that way. Therefore, if you accept the idea that it's a mimetic process, ultimately, maybe there will be many false attempts before many victims killed, but ultimately, you'll have a moment where, like a deck of cards, you know, all the cards will be together and one single victim. And what will happen then? And then, peace will descend on the community, because everybody Has no more enemy. It'll be innocence again, you see? And it'll be such a miracle that the victim who was reviled two minutes before becomes divine. The malefactor becomes a benefactor, and there you have the real archaic sacred, which is both bad and good. When these people find themselves reconciled, they are too modest, they know too much about themselves, to think that they are responsible for their reconciliation. So who can be responsible? It has to be that bad guy who created the trouble in the first place. So he's the master of everything, or she, because it can be a female, of course. It's only a victim. But if they find themselves reconciled, and they must, since uh, there is no more enemy, so suddenly you have the conflation, you know, of absolute war and total peace in one second. And the proof that it is so that if you look at sacrifice, at classical sacrifice, the victim is very bad before being killed. And it's very often the object of ritual insults, you know. And right after being killed, becomes good, you can eat the victim and so forth.
3: According to Girard's hypothesis, The discovery of this peacemaking single-victim mechanism was neither intentional nor conscious. The people involved did not intend the result they achieved, and it was precisely this that made the result so impressive, so profound, so paradoxical. What can they have supposed except that they had been touched by a force entirely transcending them? You have, Hering, you've been saved by a mysterious...
1: Power which is both can be very bad, get you in trouble and be very good, save you. and save you. how? Through some kind of violence which we all committed together, but which obviously didn't really kill that creature, that creature is immortal, or that creature is uh, has been resurrected
3: since it saved us. For Girard the discovery of the saving power of the scapegoat is the beginning of both religion and culture. And culture, he thinks, must have had a profound adaptive value during the period of what he calls hominization, or becoming human. During human evolution, the brain expanded very rapidly, which created vast new potentials, but also produced a prolonged period of dependency and vulnerability in childhood. And this vulnerability, Girard thinks, would have quickly been the end of us without some system of order. In order
1: to account for the
3: last stages of harmonization,
1: you need culture. Why do you need culture? Because, you know, a young animal, a few days after he's born, can in a way fight for himself, can follow the flock. Whereas, uh, because of the very large head of the human body, you know, birth is very difficult, and uh, the human infant needs to be protected for years. He cannot run, he cannot walk, he cannot do anything. And this is probably very important, as uh, very inevitable, if you want the brain to be as large as it is, and it grows very much too in the first. uh, So, in order to set up a system in which the children can be kept for years and protected, you must have areas of non-violence in the culture, which I think only sacrifice and
3: the sacred can establish. The sacred, as Gerard understands it, is a displacement or estrangement of the community's violence, an alien shape in which this violence can be confronted and propitiated. Sacrifice is the means by which the relationship with the sacred is managed. It institutionalizes the first spontaneous discovery of the single victim mechanism. Because the mysterious peace conferred by the first murder, Girard says, must have lasted only so long.
1: When that experience begins to fade away, and the first ferments of new mimetic rivalry occur, What are the people of that community going to think? They are going to be terribly worried about having a new crisis. They suffered horribly from the previous one. So they are going to have the idea, let's do it again. Maybe the God did it to teach us to do it again. You see what I mean? So they take a substitute victim, animal, man, I don't know. And then we all gang up against that victim. And after that, we'll be reconciled. The proof that ritual is that, is the beginning of many rituals. Because the beginning of many rituals was a problem that was posed and never solved by anthropologists in the old days, you know. The beginning of many ritual is a deliberate uprising of the whole community, against itself. Total chaos. Deliberate chaos. Why? Because the original triggering mechanism of the scapegoat, of the successful scapegoat, was disorder. So, you redo the disorder to begin with. There are other communities that feel scared at the idea of doing the disorder. They think there there will always be enough disorder in the community to trigger the scapegoating, you know. So, they avoid that. But it's a question of interpretation, of how you're going to... how the people who set up the ritual look at the past experience and organize the future, the periodic redoing. And you can see that communities go into ritual when they are afraid. They are essentially afraid of the mimetic rivalry, but they are also afraid when the sun goes back, you know, and so you have winter rites. They are afraid the sun will not come up again. Or they are afraid when the sun doesn't want to go to bed anymore on the 24th of June, and they have solstice or whatever rights. And uh, they also have rights when uh, the young men become adults, which is very scary. And the rights are ordeals, and so forth, and are again the sacrificial thing. You put them through the wringer, and they come out full members of the culture. They've been initiated, they've been through the crisis, and very often we know that in many archaic rituals, if one of the kids doesn't come back, he's killed, through whatever ordeals may be organized for them, it's good for the other ones. What does it mean that we are really dealing with a form of sacrifice? So you find, in a way, this passage from death to resurrection or reinvigorated life at all levels, in all rituals. And ritual is primarily invigoration through victimization. So, ritual first is born out of the foundational murder, then gradually it becomes specialized, because every big crisis of human life, of community as a whole, is the occasion of ritual. Every time you feel you're in trouble or might be in trouble, any any sign of change, you go into ritual. So in my view, far from being comedy, you know, or nonsense. When you asked archaic people why they did these rituals, they said, we do it because the gods in the past told us to do it. And we do it to maintain peace in the community. You always have these two things. And I say they are true. They are true. You must take it quite seriously. This is the way they interpret their own experience. So, culture is that, my view. Because as rituals become more and more specialized, the religious element tends to fall away. And uh, what is left is a kind of structure of dealing with a problem, having education for the kids. Education and the ritual ordeal, initiation rites, are fundamentally the same thing. Education, you remove the religious element. But they have exams, and so all deals.
3: René Girard advances his theory of cultural origins as a speculative but still scientific hypothesis. It's scientific in the first place because it demands no foresight or planning on the part of those who founded the first cultures, but instead shows how sacrifice, the first religious institution, could have derived entirely from the playing out of mimetic rivalries within early human groups. It's scientific also in the range of its explanatory power. It tells us, as Girard has just said, why so many rituals involve behaviors that are normally prohibited. It tells us why the gods in all mythologies are sources of disorder as well as order. And according to Paul Dumouchel of the University of Quebec at Montreal, whom you heard earlier, it also sheds light on one of anthropology's longest-standing problems, how to account for the family resemblance between sacrificial rituals all over the world. The competing explanations up till now have been either independent invention or a common source, but neither has ever been fully satisfactory. For example, the common source theory, associated with British anthropologist Maurice Hocart, or Ocar, in Paul Dumouchel's French pronunciation, is contradicted by some of the physical evidence. But Girard's theory, Dumouchel says, solves these
4: problems oka did a lot on the comparison of rituals and of institution among different cultures and oka thought that these things were so similar at a certain level that they must be related in some way so what he did is that he postulated a form of diffusionism it was called the idea that culture started somewhere and then it was diffused it spread out into different areas of the world. The problem with this hypothesis is that we had no idea of understanding how it it was diffused, how it was propagated to different parts of the world, how it passed from one area to the other, and we had no, no idea of the mechanism it would have followed, and a lot of our historical evidence wasn't clear about that. I mean, seemed to indicate that it could not have taken place this way. So, O'Carr's diffusionist hypothesis, or was rejected, but his comparison between culture remained as a very good achievement. And one of the the advantages of René's theory is that it gives us an explanation of these resemblance and differences between different cultures, not because they have all spread out from one original point, not because of links between different cultures, but because they all come out from this same mechanism which generates them. So in that sense, it is a hypothesis whose interest is that it actually is very fertile. It allows us to reorganize a lot of data which we did possess, but we didn't know exactly how to structure.
3: Culture, in Girard's theory, has not come from a single place, but rather from a single discovery that he thinks people must have made many times in many places. The theory of mimetic crisis, spontaneously resolved by the transfer of all hostilities onto a single victim, therefore explains both the variations and the underlying consistency in the practices of archaic cultures. It also accounts for something else that has long eluded explanation, the purpose of religion, which Girard says is quite simply to control violence. Religion organizes sacrifice— and sacrifice inoculate society against the very real threat of much worse violence. As such, it is, in Girard's estimation, an eminently practical undertaking, without which the first cultures would have torn themselves apart. This view pits Girard against several powerful currents in contemporary thought. It offends against the Romantic doctrine of original goodness. It looks askance at the contemporary nostalgia for the sacred. And it also challenges the rationalist view that religion is just self-interested priestcraft.
1: Rationalism, the philosophy of enlightenment, they've decided that religion was pure superstition. Superstition means, in a way, the foam on top of something. It means superfluous, ultimately. And I think that Voltaire, had the only real alternative to the mimetic theory. The mimetic theory tells you ritual is really useful in the first stages of culture, because ritual shapes you know, a certain way of dealing with certain problems, and at the same time prevents the violence, because it focuses the violence on the victim. Therefore, it prevents probably a lot of uh, possibly reciprocal violence there, which is there. Voltaire says, why is religion everywhere? Because the priests everywhere, sneaky that they are, take over, you know, by scaring the people. And uh, it's a tactic of power. It's a conspiracy of power. But I would ask, where do the priests come from? The priests are also the product of religion. He makes them kind of exist independently as separate demons you know, because he hates them so much. I say either Voltaire is right or the medic theory is right since religion is everywhere. Either you make it nothing as a pure parasite of society or it has to be the heart of it.
3: Girard's sense that religion is the heart of society draws on a wide range of anthropological evidence. From the scapegoat kings of Africa, to the dismembered god Dionysus of Greek mythology—from the prisoners, slaves, and virgins sacrificed on the altars of the sun in ancient Mexico, to the children consumed in the fiery furnaces of Moloch in North Africa and the Middle East. But there is a tendency today to doubt all evidence of such things as cannibalism, headhunting, or human sacrifice and to think of them only as the tainted findings of a colonialist and ethnocentric anthropology. Here, too, Girard's theory offers a bold challenge.
1: You know, today it's politically correct to say that uh, it was English imperialism which invented all these things against the natives. It's not true. Because at the same time, the archaeologists are working. And, for instance, you've probably read that on the highest peaks of the Andes, They find these children sacrificed by the Incas. So, they had child sacrifice there. About two weeks ago, I saw a program on PBS about this. And they started with a kind of politically correct speech against these bad Spaniards, who were slandering these people, and saying they had human sacrifice, and so So I said, oh, that program is not going to be interesting, and I almost turned it off. Fortunately, I kept going. At a given point, they totally forgot their politically correct speech and started to describe the present-day reality of people finding all these children sacrificed and placed on top of the mountains. You know, at a, at such a high level that people cannot dig them very easily, you know, they have to rest every 2 minutes because the air is so rarefied up
3: there. These findings in the Andes are typical of much recent archaeological evidence, for example, of widespread cannibalism in North America, which tend to confirm Girard's theory. But there remains a lot of resistance to his ideas, partly because big theories are out of fashion, partly because Girard has crashed the boundaries of too many academic disciplines to get a fair hearing in any of them, and partly, he says, because many of us would rather look away from the violence, against which sacrifice was humanity's first line of defense.
1: The violence is real in human society. Early rituals are real acts of violence. And you see it when you read, you know, for instance, the first anthropologists who went to Australia, how marvelous their descriptions are, because they describe some rituals that scare them. They are so lively, you know, they are so... The violence is so real, and that terribly important, because in a way that's what tends to be denied by contemporary anthropology or by a certain view of language. You know, now only texts are violent. In in some of our, you know, they tell you they talk about the violence of the text, and if you say, but was there a real human sacrifice? Yes or no, and so on. What does real mean? And so, you, see, you see what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we have so much nonsense that I'm talking in favor of common sense. You know, I, I, I would say this: I have no philosophy. The question is always the results. If you can have something which uh, makes sense, if it falls all together like the pieces of a puzzle. Some people actually say to me. The mimetic theory cannot be true because it works too well. So I said, the better it works, the better it is, supposedly from a scientific point of view. But in a way, the thing which is so difficult is to show people that everything fits, because uh, no one reads anything anymore. And as long as you're not uh, really accredited inside the discipline. But if you're accredited inside the discipline, you don't exist for any other discipline. People talk a good interdisciplinary game in our academic world, but they don't practice it. Because departments are centers of attention. There is a lot of anonymity in our world, and people are very scared of it, and for good reasons, because they tend to fall in the interstices of the uh, building there. So, only department life is meaningful. So if you say, uh, I believe this about uh, human societies, you're not a sociologist, I mean you can't talk. Well, but I compare human society now to... Archa- if you're an anthropologist, you stay in anthropology. If I'm in sociology, you stay in sociology. The safe scholars, the people who think mostly about their career and so on, will not write a book on sacrifice. Or will not mix up Greek tragedy and archaic cultures, because he knows that the departments of classics will be furious. But the departments of anthropology will be furious too. See what I mean? You're not supposed, I think, uh, we are at a time when certain forms of synthesis, I think, are ready, are possible, that were not possible maybe, uh, obviously, 50 years ago. So at least one should have an open ear, you know.
3: The scope of the synthesis which René Girard has attempted will become clearer as this series goes on. In the next program, we'll look at how societies built on sacrifice began to break down, both in ancient Greece and in ancient Israel, and at how the writers of the Hebrew Bible began to expose the scapegoat mechanism on which all culture until then had rested.
0: On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to part one of The Scapegoat, a five-hour series about the thought of René Girard. René Girard's new book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, is published in Canada by Novalis and is available now in bookstores. Tonight's program was produced and presented by David Cayley, with the assistance of Richard Handler. The series continues tomorrow night. Our technical director is Dave Field, Associate Producer, Liz Naj. You can order a printed transcript of this series for $25 or a set of audio cassettes for thirty-nine ninety-five. dollars Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Or by email, it's ideas at cbc.ca. We also accept credit card orders by phone. The number is 416 205 7367 The executive producer of Ideas is Richard Handler. I'm Paul Kennedy.